If you've got a Bible, go to Genesis 25. I feel, I feel rushed because I want to get something out so that we can go back in and worship and worship from a place of this thing I'm going to preach. Genesis 25, 29, verse 29. 25, chapter 29 to 34, I'm going to read. Philip, I love church. I love the church so much. With all its speckles and blemishes, with all the imperfurities that we have, man, I love, I love being in this place. And I'm, I'm not just saying that, but I, I just love being in the presence of God. I love being with his children who love him as much as I do. I just love being able to be in that place where we all have the same thing in common, that we just love God so much. I was at a, at a, um, a, a band last night filled with thousands of people. And it was such an unusual feeling because it's a place where you shouldn't feel lonely, but there was so much hurt and so much lost that you can feel amongst thousands of people, you can feel so isolated. But in this place, among so little people, I can feel so at home and so in the love of the Father. That's what, for me, the church does. We hear so many people, I can't stand in the church, I can't this, I can't that. And I understand it because we've done it so poorly for so long. But it's this that God does in this place amongst his people that is so encouraging and so uplifting. I was reading through Genesis during the week and this verse jumped out at me and I've heard uh, another guy preach on this and I'm, I'm going to steal some of the themes that he has in it because I think it's fantastic and I'm not trying to have something known for my name. I just want us to understand this. But it's in Genesis 25, 25, 29, verse 34. And it says this. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, then swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. As we're reading through Genesis, this story pops up, you read it and then you move on. And it's not mentioned again until the end of the chapter where we see where where. Jacob, uh, Jacob goes in and he pretends to be Esau and he gets the birthright from his father. He, get, he gets Esau's birthright for his father. And I was reading through this and I, I said, God, why is that such an important part of the story? And then I, I remembered a, a sermon that I had heard quite a while ago and I went back and listened and that's right where as a church we are. And I'm going to explain what it means this morning because I think it's so important, but it also matches so beautifully with a verse that we've all heard preached so many times and I'm not going to use that verse to make you get to church early or do what you've said you're going to do, but it's Matthew 5.27 that says, let your answer be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. I want to use these two verses to show you something that in our life we, we, we miss so often. Esau was a hunter. He was a man's man. He was hairy. It says that he had hair all over his body and he would, could go and hunt game. 
And his father, his father Isaac, loved wild game. So, of course, Esau was his favorite son. He was the hero of the family, if you'd like. Jacob was the nerdy boy who liked to sit inside and read books. He liked to, to be in the tent and not go out and gather. He was a, a, a cook in the family. He was a, a, a mummy's boy. So from the very beginning of this story, we see, a, we see a, a dysfunction in the family. We see the two parents aiding toward the one they preferred the most to look after, protect the son they liked the most. So Isaac protects Esau, looks after Esau, and, and his mother looks after to, to Jacob and he protects Jacob. So right off the bat, we see a dysfunctional family. Just a side note. A little bit of dysfunction at the beginning breeds into a large bit of dysfunction at the end. When we think we're doing something good for our family or for, for a situation, thank you, thanks. When we think we're doing good for, for a family or a situation, we really have to stop and think, is this going to help my family and build into something bigger or am I breeding a bigger dysfunction? So at the beginning of the story, we see, we see a mother and a father fueling a dysfunction in a family, fueling a, spit, a split rather between the two brothers, the two brothers who loved each other but were caused to take sides because of the way that their, their parents were bringing them up and were raising them. Because of the favoritism that the, each parent had toward each son, there was a high dysfunction in the family. Some of the verses says that, that when, when Esau came in, he was cooking red stew some verses say he was cooking just red some people say that he was cooking a, a delicious stew it changes from word to word but then we see that next part where it says therefore his name was called Edom the reason that Moses or the author puts that in the story is he's he's laughing at Esau he's he's making a joke toward Esau because Edom is the Hebrew word for red Okay, it was, it, what he was saying when he came in the door was he was saying, I want that red, that stew that you're brewing. So the word is Adom. The Hebrew word for the is ha. So it's ha Adom is the word, the red. So all translations go back to the previous thing saying ha Adam. I want that ha Adam, that red stuff. The understanding in the Hebrew culture of red liquid as a as a meal was that it was it was nourishing to the body so they didn't have the uh, types of medicines and things that we have now but they understood that when their stomach was hurt and when they were weary and slow they needed the red stuff because the red stuff was a life source that gave them energy and allowed them to live so when he comes through the door and he says i'm dying i'm dying give me the life source Give me the red. I'm hungry. Now, obviously, Esau, as a hunter, he'd been out in the field chasing a game and he couldn't get anything. So he comes into the room. He comes into the room pretty depleted at the fact that he hasn't caught a game. He's a bit of a failure. He comes into the house and his brother's there cooking red stew, the life force that's going to bring me back. He gets to this place where he says, I need this I'm going to die. I need this. Bit of an exaggeration. But how many times in our life have we seen something and gone, I need this. I need that brand new car. 
I need that friendship with somebody. I need it. I need it. He comes and he says, I'm going to die, Jacob. What good is my birthright? Give me that hot adam. Give me that red stuff. Give me that life source. Nothing else matters. The only thing I can see in my vision right now as I come through the door is the red stuff. I want it. And Jacob says to him, it's easy. Sell me a birthright. Despise. It says at the end of the verse that Esau despised his birthright. To despise something is to profane. To treat something that is holy as if it is common. That's how we profane. Something that's holy in our life and we treat it as though it's something common in our life. So we, we get the word profanity is to swear, is to use a holy word or a holy um, uh, phrase and make it a common phrase. We all know how often that, that happens in our world today. So Esau comes in and he says, I want to use the thing that is most common to me, sorry, most holy to me, my birthright, and I'm going to swap it and make it something common as is for that hot adam, that red stew. When we take the life that God has given us and we trade it for something coming, sorry, something common, we are profaning the life God's given us. We are actually making something holy that he's called us to be and turning it into something common when we toss it away. The word inspired, I didn't believe this. I heard a guy say this and I was like, I don't think that's right. But I went and researched it and he is right. The word inspired in our common dictionary means to be breathed into. The word inspired comes from the word being breathed into. So when we talk about the scriptures being the inspired word of God, it's it's because they were breathed into by God. Where else do we see God breathe into something in the scriptures? In creation. God bends down and he picks up a, a, a lump of clay. He molds it into man and then he breathes into it. We are the inspired by God. As people, we walk inspired by the creator. So when we say the, the Bible, oh, it's the inspired word of God. You are the inspired word of God as well, because he breathed into you in your beginning. When we take that and we throw it away, we profane the name of God because we make something that he made holy, we make it common. I've really been challenged by this in my, in my language, in the way that I speak, because often the biggest critic of me is me. And I will call myself things that no one else would call me. And I was talking to Sean and Josh about it the other day and I was telling him this revelation that I had and not 30 seconds later, I was sitting at my desk and I did something. I said, Ben, you goose. And Sean yelled out from the other room, stop it. Because what I'm doing when I, when I pull myself down, I was never meant to be, I'm profaning what God's made me and that's inspired by him. So I take that which he made holy and I make it common. I profane what God did for me. Esau's birthright was holy and he made it common 
by swapping it for that hot adam, that bread stew. Give it to me. I need it. Nothing else matters except for that short thing that I can see. The way we carry a birthright is not the common way we see. Your birthright is not, it's not what your father's saved up and then you get that when he dies. That's not your birthright. As a Christian, that's not your birthright. That's the birthright we see used in the scripture. But God is digging a deeper understanding, a deeper well of our understanding and thought process of a birthright. Your birthright is simply this. It's the things that God has for you in the way he created you and made you holy in the beginning. That's your birthright. The story God's written on the book that sits in heaven and he's turning your pages, that's your birthright. That's the things he's calling you into. It's not something he will do with you and, and he'll see how it goes depending on whether you've been a good boy or a, or a bad boy or a good girl or a bad girl. He's already written your birthright and now he's calling you into that place. But because of us and the way we live, he has to change a few things along the way. But the birthright we've been given was what he wrote before you were even in your mother's womb. Because he knew what, you, what he wanted and where he wanted you to be. That's your birthright. We use the verse, honor your mother and your father, and we'll say, kids, it says here in the Bible, honor your mother and your father, go and do your teeth. Brush your teeth, because I said so. Get to bed, because it says honor your mother and your father. That's not what this is talking about. Again, that's a surface, it's good, but it's a surface level understanding. We want to go deeper into that. That honour your mother and your father is to carry out their legacy, to carry their name. In the Jewish culture, when they were to honour their parents, they took the work of their father and they did it better than he could. They increased the name, their, their family name, they increased it. They took it further and bigger and better. That's why it, it breaks my heart when I see dads and mums upset with their kids who are doing better than they did. That's the goal. Your kids take your family name and they take it bigger and better than you did. And guess what? Their kids do the next thing and the next thing. That's how honouring a family line works. So when it says honour your, your, your father and your mother, it means take the name that they have and make it great everywhere that you go. The Chinese understand this incredibly where they bring dishonor to their family name by not doing something or doing the wrong thing. It's an it's a unhealthy culture in the way that they think they have to strive to, to exceed well in certain areas, but their, their goal, what they're trying to do is they're trying to better the name of their parents because that's how they honor their mother and their father. When we're called as Christians to honor the name of God, to honor what he's carried. It's to take his name everywhere we go and do it well. That's what it means to honor your mother and your father. That when we have a legacy, God's given us a family name and he's saying, my son, go and do the work of your father. Go and honor my name in what you do. I've given you a legacy. I've given you a birthright. Go now and complete the birthright. Does that make sense? 
So every time we operate within a Christian sphere, within a, a worldly sphere, within anything that's in our life, we're operating from a place of God. I, I want to worship you. I want to honor your name. I want to carry your name well and do it with everything that I have. That's picking up my birthright and operating from time to time. But there's things that come along that change the way we do that, just like Esau. Esau had a birthright in front of him, bigger than Jacob's. But he came in after a long, hard day where he, his, he, was, he was being beaten by, by the, the, the world. He couldn't get a, an animal to eat. He couldn't feed himself. He comes in and he busts down. He says, I'm dying. I'm dying, Jacob. Give me something. Give me that stew. Everything became about the stew. He forgot his birthright. He forgot how to honor his mother and his father. He forgot everything. And everything he saw was the stew. Matthew 5.27 says, Let your answer be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. I've heard sermon after sermon about this verse when church leaders get upset that people aren't coming to church on time or they're not going to the home groups or they're not coming to the prayer meetings. Again, I understand that. If you say you're going to do something, do it. But it's a surface level understanding of what this verse is saying. We've all sat in those sermons, eh? <laughs> what God's saying in this is let your yes be a profound yes and let your no be a profound no. If you say no to me, don't make an excuse for why you said no to me because everything you needed to say yes, I put before you. I put before you two options, blessings and curses. Choose blessing. I've given you everything you need to say yes. But if you say no, it's your no. So then we get to this place where we go, God, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get to know you because of this, but I gave you everything you needed. It wasn't that person's fault. God, I couldn't, I couldn't come back to your church because it was too hard. It was too much. It was too hurtful. But I put that before you. You said no. I've given you the ability to walk through it, but you've said no. See, we, we in the culture that we've bred today, we want to make it always somebody else's fault. We don't want to take the blame. But God's saying here in this verse, let your yes be a yes to me or let it be a no to me. Anything else is evil. Either you take the blame why it didn't happen or you take the reward when you said yes to everything I have for you. Your birthright has been set before you. I've given you something. Now you decide whether you want it or not. It's a, it's a hard thing to hear, but we need to hear it. We need to hear it. When, God, when, when I get frustrated because I haven't heard anything, I start thinking through, well, God, why haven't you spoken to me? Why can't I hear something? And then I have to think through this verse and go, did I say yes to actually hearing his voice? To sitting with him, to being with him, to pouring myself out with him? Or did I say no and let other things get in the way and continue to walk from the thing that I, I wanted, but I, I didn't have the, the ability to actually step into it? 
if I'm going to honor Dan, I can't just say to him, hey, bro, I honor you, and then walk away from it and never look after him when he needs me, speak poorly about him behind his back. But then he says to me, hey, bro, what's going on? No, 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 I honor you. The words that I speak are the last thing that show him if I honor him or not. It's the life that I live that shows him that I honor him. It's the same with God. We break down to our knees in in beautiful worships like we just had. God, I love you. I want everything that you want. I want to be with you. I want it. And he's saying, good, good. These words are beautiful. But I want to see what it looks like when you go out there. I want to see if you will let your yes be a yes. It's yes now. But will it be yes out here? We heard Brad preach last week about God being in our storms. That's a beautiful preach. Brad nailed it. But it doesn't mean anything to us if we can't apply that in the storm. It's easy for me to love my wife when, when it's all roses and, and, and we're having a good time and things are happy. And she agrees with me and, and we're watching the movies I want to watch and we're eating delicious steaks and salad. But it's difficult to love my wife when things aren't going so rosy, when we haven't spent time together, when we've got to watch love movies and eat salads with no steak. No, that doesn't happen, but you know what I mean. It's easy to do that. Guys, it is, it is easy on a Sunday morning to, to get to your knees and say, God, I love you. That's the easy part. But it's difficult to do that during the week. It's difficult to do that when, when people are mean to you, when, when the church doesn't have your back, when there's nobody you can rely on, when you don't have any friends around you. That's when it goes, God, I don't, I don't know what this looks like. That's when your yes and no starts to come a little bit tricky. We start to have to think through, God, what do you mean with this yes or no? I said yes to you. Complete and utter devotion to his yes or complete and utter devotion to your no. That's how we live our life in every instance. You know, when I I grew up in the church, the thing that baffled me was that it was always about my sin. And I always had to try and work out whether I was doing the, if I was staying away from the right no's. So I was always focused on the no's. I was always focused on the don't do's. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and you'll be sweet. So we spend our whole life um, blinkered, those horse blinkers, into the no. But then when someone says, is it about grace or is it about the law? We go, it's not about the law. Okay, but what are you so focused on the no for? Well, that's what I've been taught to do. And the moment I stuff it up, especially for church leaders, the moment I stuff up a no, you were never a good Christian. I lose everything, everything. But if I can change my vision to stop being on the no's, stop thinking myself, I'm a bad, I'm a bad guy, I'm a bad guy, I'm a bad guy, because the enemy just keeps cycling that through, because the last thing he wants you to do is accept that you can step into a yes, because if he keeps you in the no, you will stay in the no. But if we can get our eyes and go, this is the crap that I'm living in, I'm going to stop looking at that God. And I'm going to look at your yes. Tell me, what is your question? 
Son, will you spend time with me? Daughter, will you come to me? Yes. All of a sudden, the no's start going away. All of a sudden, we don't start wanting to live that life because we're living the life of yes. We're living in a position where, where we, we are solely sold out to his yes, his yes, his yes. And I don't mean come to all our church events. That's not what I mean. I mean you and him, one-on-one, understanding who he is. I know I've said it three times, but I was at a, I was at a gig last night and I listened to a band that as a kid, I, well, as when I was younger, <laughs> growing up, I loved these songs. I loved them. I knew all the words. And I went there last night and I was standing in the crowd and I couldn't sing the songs that they were singing. I knew all the lyrics. I knew how they went. I knew the next part. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I know. But I was standing in this place and I realized, God, I looked around and the whole crowd was singing it with their eyes shut and their hands out wide. And I thought to myself, Flip, that's, I can't say yes to that anymore. And then I started thinking to myself, geez, I've really become an old man, haven't I? I really, I, I really, <laughs> I never felt more uncool in all my life. But I realized in my heart, I I said, God, I I can't say yes to that. I can't let this stuff in my life because I've said yes to you. And if I've said yes to you, everything else is no because I only get one or other choice. I can't have both of them. We have to understand that in our life, we get to position ourselves where we say, God, in this area, I want you. And in this area, I don't. And it's your choice. The thing we always do, I preached about it a few weeks ago. The thing we always do, though, is we focus on the no's. Well, I'm I'm not cheating on my partner. I don't go out and get drunk. I'm not doing drugs. I'm not this and I'm not that. And that's great. Well done. But there's other things in your life that you're not saying yes to. Because if you were, you would be understanding how to walk closer with God in that area. I'm not trying to crack the whip on us. But as a church, the whole body, we need to understand this. Because we have so many people so focused on the no that they just can't get it done. Because God said, you won't get it done. Just follow my yes. Follow the things I ask you to do. And I promise you, I will step you into something. Go with me to Hebrews 12. Hey, Kat, can you put it on the screen for me? Because I didn't write it down and I don't want to jump out of this. Hebrews 12, 16, verse 16 and 17. The author of Hebrews is talking about how we live in God, how we live in the grace of God. Hebrews 11 talks about all these people all these people that have done the wrong thing, who have lived a life full of sin and horror. But then we see this verse in Hebrews 12, verse 16. It says this, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, 
who sold his birthright for a single meal. Go to 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Just go back to 16 for me. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. The author of Hebrews says that Esau was unholy. Some verses say ungodly. Some say ungodlike. That he was as far from God as you could get. Because he sold his birthright. That he is seen as the furthest from God because he made what was holy common. What about Moses, the murderer? What about King, King, King David? Slept with a, a lady who wasn't his wife and then had her husband killed. What about him? What about Samson? who slept with prostitutes? What about Solomon, who had thousands of women? He wrote the book on wisdom. What about these guys? These are the heroes of our faith. The heroes of our faith are caught in the most awful of sin. Yet the author of Hebrews says, it was Esau who was ungodly. What? How was it that Esau was ungodly? Because the action that he did removed him from the life that the Father had given him. Sin doesn't remove us from God when we've entered and been saved into him. It gives us an awful life where we don't live what God has for us. We live in in squalor and we squander things that God has for us. But it doesn't remove us from him because Jesus died on the cross and he gave us the wholeness to step out of our sin and step fully into him. But when we remove ourselves from the life that God's given us, we become ungodly because God is no longer with us in our journey. We actually remove ourselves from who he is. We remove ourselves from the birthright that he's given us. As Christians... We get to walk two paths, our own birthright, the path that we choose, or God's birthright, the path that God's given us. Does that make sense? One path takes us away from God and makes us ungodly. The other constantly leads us into him, into his presence, into his kingdom. This is the last point I want to make, and then we're going to go back into worship. Ha-Adam, Ha-Adam, the red, the red, give me that red stuff. The end of the verse says, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. Has anyone had lentil, lentils before? Oh, the Edith, beautiful. It's not a steak, Edith. It's beans. It's beans. It's just beans. He went in and he gave away everything for a bowl of beans. Everything for a bowl of beans. I wouldn't give you a thank you for a bowl of beans. <laughs> I just thought upset, Kristen. Depends how hungry I am. Sure, I was going to go there, but I, I, I want to stick on the point. Jacob took, he takes the birthright. 
but it was given to him by Esau. So although he manipulates his father to take it, it was Esau who gave it to him. It means that he steps into the birthright that, that, that was given to him by Esau. He received the blessing because Esau gave it away. So he steps into the blessing of the firstborn. But the point is this. He gives away his birthright for a bowl of beans that would have lasted him three or four hours and he would have been hungry again. Three or four hours, he gave everything away. We laugh at that and we go, what an idiot. We wouldn't have done that. What a goose. We wouldn't step into that place. We wouldn't give ourselves over for that. Yet we do it all the time. We step into something and go, God, I need this thing. I need this thing right now. I need it more than anything. I'm going to die if I don't get it. I need that new car that's going to push me into debt. I need this relationship with a, with a girl that I work with that's going to drive me away from my marriage. I need this hit of drugs. I need this next beer. I need this thing or I'm going to die. And we push ourselves again and again and again away from the birthright God's given us, all for a bowl of beans that goes away so quickly. We do something and regularly the hit finishes, whatever it is, the hit finishes and we go, what have I done? And then this is what we do, the same thing that Esau did. We go back to the father and we grovel before him. Father, give me back my birthright. Give me back the thing that I sold. The difference between the father is that God will continually come back to you but this is the thing we live on this cycle we live on this cycle from beans to beans to beans to beans to beans that we get to the end and we go God my life was awful why did you do that to me why did you put me through that life why couldn't you make it easy like this other guy at church who has an easy life I want to be real blunt and say that that guy isn't going from beans to beans to beans to beans. He's living in his birthright. So what we do in the church is we go, well, why does he get everything? Why does Dan get a nice family and a, and a nice car and have a good job? Why does he get all that stuff? Why am I living from this thing to this thing to this thing? And I'm in horrible things. And then we want to... We want to Slam, I, I, you've just, you were sitting on your own, so I'm just giving it to you. But you understand what I'm saying. Stop looking at everybody else and start looking at what's in your bowl. Are you living in your birthright or are you jumping from bowl of beans to bowl of beans to bowl of beans? Does that make sense? Is anyone challenged? Does anyone want to throw anything at me? Because that's good if we get that. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. I don't want to just preach fancy sermons, guys. I want us to I want us to grab a hold of something and change our life. If we walk in here, if we leave here the same way that we walked in, that breaks my heart. Cuz I'm like, flip, we just put on a show. We didn't do anything. I didn't take people anywhere. 
But if we walk in and as a family, we can say, man, I I got to sit in the throne room of the king with my brothers and sisters. I was challenged to go and change. Now we actually step into a place where the Sunday morning with our brothers and sisters prepares us for something that we get challenged through in the week. So when I'm standing in that job, like Brad was saying last week, we get to think through, God, what's my birthright? Why do you have me here? Because I can take the bowl of beans right now Give me that red stuff. Or I can decide to walk with you and actually change something. Why don't you stand? Timmy, do you, wanna, do you guys want to just play? When we were finishing worship, Edith had a word for people that there was... What was the word you used, Edith? When you, when you don't like yourself because you've done the wrong thing. Shame. Shame. Edith spoke about the fact that there is a, a, a level of shame because we've lived in a place where we don't think we've done the right things. We don't think we're good enough. And I saw a lot of people put their hand on their heart. And that's great that you did that. But I want to challenge you a little deeper. Would you come? I believe Edith... What Edith carries, and we saw it last week, three people last week brought that psalm, unbeknownst to any of them. Brad had a completely different message ready to preach. Before he walked through the door, he felt God say, preach on Psalm 23. Edith had it ready to go. She wasn't sure when she was going to share it. Dave Barsh walks forward and says, hey, I think we should share this. Shows her Psalm 23. Dave reads it. Edith prays into it, Brad preaches on it. None of them knew what was happening. If we walk away from here and go, well, I don't know that that God came to the meeting this morning. To me, God showed up in that. That Psalm 23 was for somebody or all of us to step into something bigger. This morning, Edith picked up something that, that matched exactly where I wanted us to go this morning. So if you're carrying something this morning, Shame, guilt, I'm not good enough. If you've been looking at all the no's and trying to work out how you get yourself to a place where I don't want to do these no's anymore, I can't make this happen anymore, I want you to come to the front and let Edith lay hands on you.